Hi, this is Lorraine Salazar with Everyday Heroes. Today's guest is Richard Palmer. Richard is a counselor, poet, and leader of men's work, focusing on restoring the life of the soul and living the artful life. Hi, Richard. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. Just to give a little recap for the audience, this is a follow-up interview from our last episode with Tom McGee, Richard's colleague. And we talked about how the role of men has changed over the last 50 years. And how has that change led to a loss of identity in the modern man? In that episode, we focused a lot on the wounded boy. And that's verbiage that you and Tom use a lot, from my understanding, when you're working together. I wanted to take some time to now discuss... um, and focus more on the wounded boy. What does that really mean? And how how does how does the wounded boy affect himself, affect the world at large? So can we talk about that today and kind of open that up for discussion? I'm very excited to talk about that. So am I. Yes, I've been really looking forward to this topic. It runs deep and true to my heart. So I'm very happy and excited to have you on the show speaking about that. Thank you, Lorraine. Well, those of us that have fathers and brothers and husbands, and I mean, there's a, half the world is men. And so what does it mean that men have this wounded boy inside? And, you know, not unlike wounded girls that women have, but we're focusing on, on men today. So, so the wounded boy, well, let me back up and just say something about what Carl Jung said about healing. I, this will this will help uh, the territory where we're headed. Carl Jung said that in order for something to heal, you first have to separate it out. And so to heal the wounded boy in the adult man, you have to differentiate the wounded boy from the man. Otherwise, you have this blur of boy-man, wounded boy-man. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have when you look around the culture. And so it's it's hard to know where the wounded boy is because it looks like a man but it's a wounded boy man and so the way you separate it out is you begin there's many ways to do this what i have my clients do or my men do is i'll have them write in a notebook just from the wounded boy's perspective and and then try to write from the man's perspective because what does it mean to be a man is you know just as important a question. I was going to say that just as important and and definitive in knowing what it means to be a man and also what is it being a wounded boy? How do they access and tap into wounded boy? Well, is it it so unconscious? I I often think about that. Is it something we carry unconsciously or something people carry on a conscious level and, or is it in stages? And once it is conscious and aware, then you want to work on it. Yeah, it can Those are a lot like of that. questions. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. Um, <laughs> big topic. It's mainly unconscious with most mm-hmm. people until the wounded boy starts to run a man's life to the point where it starts to destroy it, um, either through drug and alcohol addiction or just really ruinous behavior. And so in this separating out the wounded boy from the man, you begin to learn it's a completely different psychology. It's a completely different paradigm. And what we begin to learn is that the wounded boy is not relational. He's self-centered. It's all about him. And he's obsessed with immediate gratification. And there's an adolescent quality that gets fixated around 14 years old, 15. And it's not too hard to see that when you look around the world. I mean, a lot of who's running our government is, uh, they're adolescents. And I was just going to say, when you were giving that description, there's so many males that pop into my head that, that fit that description. Women have it too. I feel like women have been cultivated to let things air and express more than men have. And I think that's one major difference that I see where men um, 
have been taught even from like in utero that you just um, don't express as much or you keep it in. Right. So I'm, right. I, I, I wonder how that affects, that difference affects men. Right. Being, being vulnerable is perceived as weak. We all kind of know that. And men sure. have that. Men are encoded with that. You know, you see it on the playgrounds in grammar school. Boys can't cry and um, toughen up, etc. Right. What's, what's so ironic, Lorraine, is in my men's groups like Tom's, I hang out with some of the most tender hearted, sensitive, very expressive men, and the world doesn't know it. But I do, and so do they. But it's because they're willing to do the kind of work that's necessary and it, it's in a safe environment. And yes. so they begin to share in a way where they don't feel judged or shamed or blamed. So let me tell you a story where this, this whole idea started about working with the boy and the man. But about 20 years ago, I was going through my own initiation work. I was around 45 and I was with a group of about 12 men and we were out in the wilderness and it's very, very deep, ritualistic kind of work, and it's ancient, borrowed from indigenous cultures like West Africa and Aboriginal culture. And about the second day, one of the men pulled out his cell phone and started taking pictures of the ritual site that we had created. And that's a real no-no. You just don't do that. Right. And so one of the assistants to the leader in a rage, said, this is not an effing camping trip. And he slammed down his chair, and we were all kind of shocked in that confrontation. But the leader had the wisdom to say, now, gentlemen, you can hear that as a boy being shamed or as a man being challenged. And that, mm. that differentiation between a boy being shamed and a man being challenged was really the impetus for Tom and I uh, working together and co-writing a book about this very subject about the boy and the man. Because it's a big issue. It's so big, and I think it hurts so many men's lives. Because well, of and, it. it's, and it's destroying the world. Right, and leaders uh, and relationships that they have with their families and women and work and so most much. Most relationships are are not just challenged, but decimated by this yes. wounded boy that, and it's because of shame. And you brought, um, or in the, in the interview with Tom last time, you guys talked about shame and then he read my poem, The Shame Boy. Yes. The, that Shame Boy poem in the last 20 years has struck such a deep chord that out of all the poems I've written, that is like the most sought after. And it's because it strikes something so deep and so dark. Because, see, shame is different than being just wounded. Our wounds, when left alone and not treated and not healed, they get wrapped in shame. And then the shame says, I'm defective. And I am inexorably damaged. And that means that I didn't do something bad, I am bad. Mm-hmm. And that shame boy poisons every relationship and the shame boy makes a man isolate and it makes a man move towards addiction. Mm-hmm. And the shame boy says, I'm, I'm not worthy of love. And the shame boy says, I'm not good enough for this job. Somebody's going to find out I'm a fraud. And it goes on and on and on. And so most men, I'd, I'd even say every man has some kind of a shame boy. And I think women have their shame girl. But this shame boy, if he isn't identified, will run a man's life. And will run it into ruin. And so... I think we've seen examples of this too, like you mentioned through addiction and disorders and even suicide. And, you know, I mean, I think it can just yep. go, go and go. There's a term that the author, Bill Plotkin, who wrote a wonderful book called Soulcraft, 
came up with that Tom and I use in our men's retreats, and it's pathological adolescence. Mm. And pathological adolescence means that it's one thing when you are 14 or 15 to act like that because you are that age. But when you're 40, 50, 60, or 70 and you're acting like that, it's pathological. It's sad and destructive. And destructive. And so this is what Tom and I are largely working with. And therapy helps, but what really helps are rites of passage work and initiatory work, which is best done out in the wilderness and in the men's retreats that Tom and I lead. We, we set up rituals that culminate at the end of a weekend that, that are very initiatory and they're worth like a year or two of therapy. Wow. Wow. Why is this initiation process so dynamic and so well-received in the male culture? Well, it's ancient, Lorraine. It's ancient. You can go back tens of hundreds of thousands of years and every indigenous culture has rites of passage. Has They see that initiation is not just a good idea, that it's essential. And if they don't do it, the village will be ruined. The village mm-hmm. dies. And the way they identify it is when a young boy is 13, 14, starts noticing girls. And they mm-hmm. say, ah, we need to teach him the sacred ways of the village. And so they get a collective group of boys that age and they take them out and they give them an initiation. And so, so boys then when they look at a girl, don't just see a girl and, and attraction, they see the goddess standing behind the girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just like when somebody looks at a tree and, and uh, only sees lumber. Yes. And it's doesn't a very, see, the recognition, doesn't see the, the uh, spirit of the tree. Yeah. The recognition, I think, is important because it also doesn't just make us jump on what we see, like, animalistically. That's but it right. gives us a second to breathe and be aware of what what we're surrounded by and what's in front of us. I, You know, I could see that affecting a lot of parts of the boy's life as well. Restraint, discipline, etc. So this initiation work is encoded in our bones. We have a bone memory. We expect it, and we don't get it in our modern culture. And so what happens then is males try to self-initiate because we need an intense ordeal in order to become a man. Mm-hmm. We don't, unlike the female gender, men need an incredibly intense ordeal in order to grow up and become a man. Um, with the feminine... It's it's marked through menstruation. And right. It's it's different. It's different. Mm-hmm. But with men, we have to create an actual ordeal in order to become a man. And the indigenous cultures throughout time have always known this. It's only in our modern culture that we've forgotten. So Tom and I are trying to bring back this. I had the good fortune 20 years ago to train with a West African shaman. And so... I'm not a shaman, but I have shamanistic qualities in my work. Um, and that's where the ritual comes in. It's also where the poetry comes in. Because the poetry is a language of the soul. And it, what that means, being a language of the soul, is that it's soaked in images. Because the soul connects us through the dream world. And the dream world is all about images imagination Mm. yes so a good poem hits you at the soul level because of its imaginative imaginative quality i want to talk more about that too i know you are a poet before we move forward can we back up a minute and talk about something you mentioned a little while ago about when you and richard had that pivotal point happened in your life at your group 20 years ago and it was how was it the wounded boy responding or the challenge of the man the man both it was both see tom wasn't in that group but that was an experience that i had 20 years ago and there were 12 of us in the clan it was called the bear clan i love uh, it when we were confronted with that 
And the leader said, you can hear that confrontation as a boy being shamed or a man being challenged. I mean, that question can be brought into every man's life in every conflict he has, whether it's at work or in his marriage, everywhere. So are you hearing this as a boy being shamed and criticized? Or can you begin to develop the kind of resilience that men develop and don't get so triggered that you're feeling judged and shamed all the time? Because the, the shame boy can't even have a, a conversation if it's got conflict in it because he feels shamed. So he shuts down. Men that have this shame boy that runs their life do one of two things. They shut down emotionally and don't do, say anything, or they rage. Right. We see a lot of both in our world. We see a lot of both. And so what, what we're looking for in our work is what Tom and I call door number three. Door number three is the healthy, expressive, assertive man. Now, would that be the healed boy, the man that's seeing it as a challenge and not hearing things as a wounded boy, but now as, you know, being challenged as a man? Well, I want to go back to your idea of it's, it's, it's gradual. And so okay. you, can, you can have a wounded boy that has shame and still contain that and act from your man consciousness. It takes practice. It takes right. practice. And so instead of immediately shutting down or raging, begin to watch that boy and say, well, I'm feeling triggered. I'm feeling blamed and shamed, but you don't react on it. One of my favorite quotes is by an existentialist philosopher, Rollo May, and he said a very wonderful thing. He said, freedom is the capacity to pause between stimulus and response. And that pause is the difference between your life being a miracle or, or just chaos. So if I pause and I notice that the interaction I'm having has triggered that wounded boy who feels shameful, I can actually hold that boy and come from a man's response. And the more I do that, the better I get at it. And the goal is that that shame boy begins to integrate into the man's heart. Mm. It, it takes work. I love that you're saying it takes practice too. It takes practice. It's almost it like a muscle. Does. You have to keep hitting the ball to keep hitting it and get better at it. How do you recognize it because of the feelings it brings up that feel negative and you don't like, and then you figure I need to do something about these feelings. Well, a man that's run by the sham boy, um, fights constantly with his woman. He fights constantly with anybody that disagrees with him or he shuts down like i okay. said it's either the shutdown or the rage and after a while you can't live like that it, you burn so many bridges that see in our culture the reason we don't have initiation rites of passage at 13 14 15 doesn't mean that we still don't need them where it shows up again is in midlife right around 40 Men start burning so many bridges. Is it is, is that why does it not show up because we're we're in the middle of burning the bridges and then we at like 40ish 45 we see what we've done like the havoc we've wrecked or why the, is that? The wreckage is so severe by 40 45 that you know men don't go into therapy voluntarily usually. It's usually a woman that brings them in. Yes. Or it's a woman that drives them there. Every man I've ever met that's come into therapy, it's almost always because the woman's unhappy with them. Right. Been and I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, but it's largely true. Right. It's been more forced rather than just on their own. They just mosey on in, needing some help. But if that man doesn't seek help at 40, 45 by 50, his life is a complete disaster. Mm -hmm. So it's better to go in, but see... What we're up against here is the single hardest thing for men to do is to ask for help. Yes. And again, just I feel like that's also wired in men from a very young age to not ask for help, to not cry, to hold those feelings and emotions in. And I feel like it's not serving anybody well at all. It's not. So here's one of the things that help is the whole idea of mentoring. Young boys need an older man in their life. And for whatever reason, they tend not to get as triggered by an older male figure than they do 
a woman, like their mother. In a male psyche, it's just about the worst thing in the world to be a mama's boy. Right. Yes. And I, I think there is this respect for an older male. You there know, is. It, it's the silverback. You know what the I mean? Exactly. You see exactly. it. You see that whole dynamic. And there is something of, of some kind of um, hierarchy that's respect that has a respect for it. And, right. I, and so, I feel like that's innate in, in boys, too, that they just know it. Well, in indigenous cultures knew that it couldn't be the father. Isn't that interesting? They that knew is. that it, they knew that it needed to be the grandfather or the uncle or in some cases the grandmother. Um, but it has to be somebody that sees the boy's soul that isn't in the family caught putting food on the table. Sure, yes, so that makes often, sense to me. Oftentimes it's an unrelated friend of the family. Right. But they're free to see the boy without all the other baggage. And right. so mentoring is one of the ways in. And when a, when a man finally does enter a men's group, which is the hardest thing in the world to make that first step, but once he does, The work starts to deepen rather quickly because men don't feel judged and shamed by another man the way they are so sensitive to a woman. Yes. It's almost like us men would rather die than to have my woman see me weak and vulnerable. Yes, but that's how presence, deep it runs. Yeah, but in the, in the presence of another man, we, we don't seem to have that kind of trigger. Um, <laughs> There still needs to be a vow of non-judgment in these men's circles. But once you have that, men actually begin to share their deepest shame, and that's how it heals. You said something before as well that you have the most sensitive, tender men in your men's groups. And you guys all see that, but when they get out there, people don't often see that because they're not in this safe environment that they've exactly. created in the group which it really touches me and, and tugs at my heart because I, I feel how beautiful would it be if everybody could get that gift from that man of how and see them in that way well exactly and so it's very contextual healing is contextual in that safe environment with other men one of the reasons why men feel safe with other men is because we're not responsible for each other, we're responsible to each other. Yes. And as soon as you put a woman in front of a man, he starts feeling like he has to be responsible for her. And that Protective, means that, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, and that means I can't let her see my vulnerability because she'll see me as weak. It's 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 terrible, but it's the way it is. That is the way it is. And that's why this topic so intrigues me because um uh, that paradigm, uh, you know, I, I would like to break it down and change it a bit so people can understand it. So I think we're ready for a poem. Are you open to that? I would love to hear a poem. Yes. I would also just like to reiterate what you said because you ended on such a so something so lovely a few moments ago about shame. And you said that's where the healing, that's where the shame starts to dissipate and the healing comes in. Can you just repeat that, please? So, well when when men start to dare as soon as one man shares his shame in a men's circle you can feel the gravity energetically drop in the circle and so it becomes immediately safe for the other men to do the same thing just takes one man to start that and in some of the groups i've been in over the years if they don't do it i do it i'll start off and i'll share something where shame creeped into my life and for most of us it was at a very early age yes but there's something magical about being witnessed with safe and sacred eyes and a softness that there's a wonderful combination that I've learned over the years that healing really for healing to happen. It needs both curiosity and reverence. Mm. And I, I, I learned this from one of my teachers and it's, it's just stayed with me all these years. So when we're curious without being an inquisitor, but also reverent, men start to feel like this is actually a safe place where I can bring my darkest places. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they do that, it lessens the charge. 
like we all should have a place like that yes everybody needs that. it's freeing and everybody healing needs. like you said so here's the interesting thing about the shame boy the way the shame boy shows up in the male psyche is because it is so the, the thought of the shame boy being seen by anybody is so terrifying what men do and they do this unconsciously but they do it is they they design elaborate strategies in their personalities like like super intellectual or super funny or um, a super workaholic or even a super nice boy mm -hmm. and all of these personality strategies are designed to keep you back keep you at a distance from seeing keep the distance so you won't see my shame boy and it's unconscious and a lot of men don't know that that's actually a false personality structure and it isn't until they start working with that shame boy that they actually realize that most of their life has been designed around keeping people from seeing that shame boy. And so it's a kind of false personality. And it's shocking. It's a real sense of grief and betrayal when a man realizes that. To themselves as well? Yeah, to themselves? And, I mean, and, they and have to, to each work... Other. Work to each other that. in the group too. Yeah. So the poem that I want to read is probably one of the most common personality strategies that men develop, and it's what I call the good boy. The good boy. And this is yeah. as a uh, putting up a shield or as a protector from letting shame boy be seen. That's right. I'm I'm the one that understands the feminine, I'm the one that understands animals, and I'm very sensitive and kind and good. But there's a huge shadow underneath that. These are the kind of men that say, I prefer women. I don't have any male friends. As soon as a man says that, you should run in the other direction. So this poem comes from a dream I had about a wounded white wolf. And it goes like this. Until you wrestle with the wounded white wolf and let his blood soak through your desperate need for approval, you will remain a good boy. Good, but not real. I'm going to say that again. Good, but not real. Very important. The world is drowning in good boys. Show me your teeth. Let me feel the wild grief in your howl. I can't trust you if you have no bite marks. When my brothers leave my cave, there is fur on the floor, and we have drummed the shelves off the walls. These are men, men I can trust with my life. Turn toward the wounded white wolf. Stop pleasing everybody. Enter the fight you came here for. That last line, Lorraine, enter the fight you came here for, is so important because one of the problems Tom and I see in our men's work is that when men are being run by this shame boy, this wounded shame boy, they're fighting the wrong fight. They're fighting chronically with their woman. They're fighting over things that are really not central to their soul life. Work, like, money. Well, like purpose. Like mm -hmm. what's the meaning in your life? Like what are the gifts I bring to the family of the earth? The, that's the fight that a man needs to fight for. And a lot of men don't know what their gifts are because... They're just trying to survive. And it's not a judgment. It's it's sad. We we lack initiation. We lack mentors. And so a lot of us men are just trying to do our best surviving. And I think that's what I tried to get to with Tom and, and spoke about is you how have the role of men changed? You know, we looked at the last 50 years and how has that created loss of identity? Well, you're answering many of those questions, with the, you know, lack of initiation. Yes. Number one, you know, Tom and I spoke about not working as much, you know, on the job with dad or in the field with dad. That's um, right. That's you know, right. so you'd start taking things away and not having things in your culture to initiate these men and get them into manhood. Well, they probably are going to feel lost. How are they going to find their place in the world? So all these masks start coming on and on top of, on top of the wounds. Right. So Robert Bly, who was really the grandfather of the men's movement, 
more accurately is the men's mythopoetic movement, because the first men's movement was following the goddess, and it was the feminist men's movement, and that was a good start, but it wasn't it wasn't quite authentic. Men needed to find their own movement, mm -hmm. and and it came through mythos and story and poetry and drumming. And so that came in the early 80s when Robert Bly and Michael Mead and James Hillman and this West African shaman, Maladoma Somme, they all started to tour America and start these big men's retreats. And that really started to crack into the modern male psyche because women were getting fed up with the way men were. It's like before the 60s, you know, men were dominant and aggressive and um, patriarchal, and it was horrible. And so what happened in my generation from the 60s and the 70s is we went the other direction. We became kind and good and sensitive, but there was no backbone. There was no real fire. Mm -hmm. And so it was just one extreme to the other. Right, exactly, which creates confusion. It does. And so yeah. men are very confused, and so are women. Sure. And so this men's work goes down into the deep soul, and one of the one of the great roads to the soul is through grief work. And so grief is a huge part of this work, and um, leading grief rituals, which Tom and I have been leading grief rituals for the last dozen years here in Ventura County. Do you have and more that you're, do you have any you're currently doing, or do you have more coming up? Is this something ongoing? Well, the pandemic has kind of put a halt to everything. Yes. So so we have to wait until it's safe enough, but that's one of the first things on our list is to have another grief ritual. And when men start to learn that it's safe to grieve, it just changes everything. It just I changes think that's, everything. I think that's what's so beautiful is um, the safety. They have a safe place and permission. You know, you're talking about what these you know, these men in the 80s did to kind of pave the way for this change and do yes. men's groups. Well, I think that also gave a lot of men permission that it's okay to do this. And I'm yeah, laughing. This is, where, this is where it may be lacking in my life. And then to go somewhere where you're accepted and feel safe. Uh, I think that's what everybody needs everywhere. And that's what's lacking in our whole cultural is we're, we're afraid of putting ourselves out there and then being penalized or judged and not feeling safe. If we're right. vulnerable without having the tools we need, then it just probably feels like more shame being piled on. It does. It does. So one of the equations that Robert Bly brought in the 80s, and it's still, still just as powerful, is he says, because of all the corruption and raping and pillaging and destruction on the planet, we know is mainly due to men. A man grows up. And he hears this equation that men are assholes, I'm a man, therefore, I'm like that. And for a young boy, that's like a curse. Sure. You want to be proud of being a man and proud exactly. of being a man, but as you should be. Here's another place where shame comes from is the collective, the culture. There's even shame. This might be one of the deepest places where shame comes from is... Um, what one of my teachers calls the Christian unconscious, where we're born in original sin. And if you look up Puritanism and Google Puritanism, there's five principles that in the 1500s, the Christian church had Puritans that felt that in order for you to be saved, first you have to admit that you're depraved and that God will choose you and so there's an elite club. You can't choose God. God chooses you. And so who can do that? Who can do that? And who can tolerate being depraved? I mean, it's, it's terrible. And so I can't tell you, Lorraine, how sad it is when I sit with a man in therapy or in a group and I learn that at his core, he feels this way. Yes. He feels oh. shameful. He feels shameful just simply by taking breath. Right. It's wrong. Yeah. It's a it travesty. Is. It is. And it's it's not the the way it should be. And so 
if healing is providing the missing experience, we need to create this safe, sacred environment that you're speaking of. When you said there's this fake fight and that men are fighting like with their wives, with their job, with their employees, employers, you know, the guy driving next to them and road rage, whatever. Exactly. Um, the real fight, just to be clear, what you said is on their purpose. Is that their correct? Purpose, are their they meaning. really deeply, are they, are they really just deeply searching for their purpose, but it's coming out in all these other ways? I think so. I think there's a wonderful book several decades ago written by a man named Sam Keen called Fire in the Belly. And he said, there's two questions a man must answer and woe to the man that reverses the order. The first one is where am I going and who's coming with me? And what happens for most men is they focus on who's coming with me. They get a job and they get a house and they get married, but they don't know where they're going. Completely. Yes. Completely. And, and they have, they don't have the, the guide or they don't have the mentor. Like you said, right. there's a lack of mentors. So unfortunately in our society right now, so they don't know what their gift is. And so they get resentful and angry like they should. And so the Greeks had this, this idea called the daimon, D A I M O N. And the Greeks believed that we're all born with a spirit of genius and this is what Tom and I work with, is we ask a man to begin to imagine that he was born with his own personal daimon that wants what it wants. And it carries your genius. It carries your fulfillment. It is where you are gifted. And when a man starts, and a woman, starts to listen to that daimon, it changes everything. Does that daimon yes. get stifled through shame? Is that one of the effects of shame? Will it stifle that or? Oh, shame, shame will stifle everything. Good. But it's, it's not even believed in our culture that we're born with this daimon, this genius. Oh, I, I think believe it, that. I actually think it's more important, Lorraine, than um, nurture or nature. Because those are the two schools of psychology that are yeah. most powerful, nurture and nature. I think the school of the daimonic is the most powerful. And when we don't listen to it, it turns demonic. That's so if, interesting. If I'm not following why I'm really here, then I will slowly start to destroy my life. We turn to addiction. That's right. Gambling, whatever it is that you're doing, fighting, whatever it is, you're going to turn to that because now your gift, your purpose isn't being fulfilled. Your diamond, your genius. You're not in. You're not congruent with the with the life of your soul, mm -hmm. and so who wouldn't be upset by that? I've even seen this play out. I've even got a hypothesis with couples that I sit with that one or both of them are not serving their daimon, and so they blame each other. Yes, that's like a lot of what we do. We blame each other in this society for not like having. Like if it weren't for we you, if it weren't for you, I'd be an artist or I'd be a dancer or a singer, and we blame each other. And it's like, wait a minute, Bucko. Take responsibility for your own life. So these are some of the things that we talk about. And one of the ways to tap into this daimon is to live what I call the artful life. And to begin to look at life as a work of art in our own lives. I've read about this on your website, and I'm so excited to get into this topic with you, Richard, because this, this is wonderful work. I want I can't wait to hear about it. Yes, well, to live an artful life, well, let me give you a quote that's a favorite of mine. James Hillman, who's like a radical psychologist, we lost him about 10 years ago, um, said, the first symptom of the loss of the soul is the loss of the sense of beauty. So that there it is. That is so right sad there. to me. That is so sad. And, the first, and, yes. The yes. first symptom of the loss of soul, because all healing is, is about soul retrieval. And so... Where we have lost soul primarily is with beauty. And so we have to make beauty central again. Yes. And then right next to beauty is imagination. And then right next to imagination is feelings. So right there, you can change a life radically. But only a subculture of people have the courage to do it because it takes courage. But what would happen if you began to put beauty at the center of your life? Like, for instance, had cut flowers in your home every day. Just that. Had beautiful music. 
Are those some of the, not homework, but are those some of the things that you suggest to your clients or you tell them? I do. I do. And, And to begin to look at the big questions in their life rather than how much money am I going to make or am I empowering myself? Because there's so much self-improvement seminars about self-empowerment. Yes. I, would, I would ask, um, is it beautiful? Is this employing my imagination? Are my deep feelings being accessed? And then there's other qualities like Tom brought in the wonderful Irish poet and philosopher John O'Donohue um, with that story he told about when men are born. Yes, that was so beautiful. Yes, I love that. Well, he has another thing he's well known for, and he calls it the reverence of approach. Mm. And he says that when we approach the world with reverence, great things want to move towards us. Mm -hmm. And this this is key to living an artful life is beginning to live a life of reverence where you begin to see the sacredness in all of life. And this is actually one of the ways Tom and I define what it means to be an initiated adult man is this man protects and blesses the sacredness of life. And living an artful life is this healing, healing your soul, healing the wounds. Is this Absolutely. It's it's the language of the soul. It's How does the, the wounded boy get to the artful life? By being invited to finger paint, by getting invited to write a poem, by getting invited to go out in nature and noticing that why are we so intrigued by nature? It's because we have an inner nature, and when our inner nature connects up with outer nature, we feel more alive. That's the artful life. The word aliveness becomes more important than even healing. And so I ask people, how alive are you? I just asked a man the other day on a scale of one to a hundred, how alive are you? And he said about 32. I said, well, that's pretty terrible. He said, how can we, how can we invite more aliveness? And so we started talking about the artful life, getting out in nature, um, even cooking creatively that's wonderful richard a big one is slowing down how about just slowing down would you mind sharing another poem with us i would love to and there's one i want to share that i'm called to share is um what tom and i call shame boy too i would love to hear it and in this poem in the second half of it you begin to feel well what do we do with the shame boy and the man begins to turn towards the shame boy. What I have learned, Lorraine, is that when a man turns towards his shame boy and he realizes that he has a shame boy instead of being the shame boy, that's worth like several years of therapy right I was going to say, that has to be such a pivotal point. And I think that's been a big question of mine. When does that unconscious, that, you know, I am one, I am this, become actually, this is me and here's this wounded child, here's this wounded boy. So we ask a question like, can you welcome the sham boy? See, because as soon as you ask that question, can you welcome the sham boy? That implies that there's an adult present to do the welcoming. Ah, yes. Without that, you just have a sham boy man. So here it is. It's called Until We Turn Downward. Until we turn downward and reach our outstretched hand into the dark night where the sham boy lives, there will be no more good days. Only hollowed out husks filled with meaningless distractions. The shame boy has been hiding under a rotted out log for 7,000 years. He keeps sending messages, headaches, insomnia, fits of rage, and late night drunkenness. What's it, and here's where it turns. What's it going to take to move toward the boy? This time, not with contempt, not with contempt but with a broken open kindness. Mm. Cradling him like a baby bird in your large benevolent hands and swaying with the rhythm of the wind and the stars and the trees, singing him home, singing him home. 
I love that you said singing him home, singing him home. There's art. There's artfulness. That's what song the is he singing? Life. Did he make up the song? You could listen you know, for it and ask can, him if there's a song. I mean, who doesn't want to be sung to? Exactly. And who doesn't want to create songs to sing themselves and, and hum tunes exactly. that they, they want to create and make up? Um, remember broken, opened kindness, or broken, opened kindness. That's a beautiful hey, line. Can hey, we, can, can we have that in ourselves if we, if the wounded boy is so wounded and it was so lacking in his childhood, how does well, he have broken, opened kindness? That's the man. See, that's the adult woman and the adult man. We always want to know who's speaking. Is is it the adult that's speaking or is it the wounded shame boy that's speaking? And in a climate of warm-heartedness from the adult turning toward the shame boy, in that climate of warm-heartedness, the shame boy begins to melt and he begins to feel safe and he begins to feel welcome. That it's not a curse to feel shame. It's just something I learned along the way that isn't serving me anymore yes but, but here here's this here's the key most of us that have a shame boy or shame girl learn to have contempt towards that shame boy or shame girl and in that climate of contempt that shame boy digs in his heels mm. and he will not let up and he will and so people stay stuck for their whole life isn't that a shame that some people stay stuck and and don't ever get that chance within themselves to take the step to change. I, because they, they haven't learned to differentiate the boy from the man, the girl from the woman, and that adult woman, and sometimes, or adult man, sometimes you have to access the elder. Like, sometimes I've imagined a big oak tree. Mm, you know, because that's beautiful that's, imagery, Richard, yes. That, that's, that's the imagination of the boy, or maybe a bear, mm -hmm. a kind bear. Because sometimes people have been so traumatized by humans, you have to get outside of humans and go into the imaginal world of trees and mountains and streams. Creating a safe place for yourself. Exactly. Right. And, and so as soon as we shift out of that contempt into something kinder and something more beautiful, the shame boy and the shame girl start to heal. Does someone else have to do it for you or meaning, do you have to be forced to want to heal or is it going to be something you come on to on your own where you're ready to heal? Not many people come on to this on their own. The shame boy and shame girl, if not interrupted, will begin to take over a person's life. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean... There Would might you? be rare cases where people do it on their own, but this is why we need counselors and therapists and healers. Absolutely. Is this an epidemic, shame boy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And for it's, a long, long time? Oh, decades. Hundreds of years, actually. Hundreds and hundreds. It's underneath all crazy behavior. It's like the La Brea tar pits at the bottom of the psyche is the shame boy. And he says... No matter what I experience, it's going to turn out bad because I don't belong here and I'm not worthy of loving. What do you say to people that have been wanting to help Shame Boy that have not that have not met that goal where that goal has not been met because the shame was too strong and had not yet healed? Are you talking about the one that wants to help or the one that it has the shame, Shame Boy? Because well, most, most everybody has a Shame Boy or Shame Girl. Let's do the one that wants to help, the one that sees it and wants to help the shame boy who's not ready. Let's say 25-year-old, 30-year-old shame boy, and yet somebody in their life, and they've probably come across many of these people who want to help, but the help isn't ready by the shame, uh, by the wounded boy. And I, so wish I, I wish I had a magical answer. For <laughs> me, it was, was certain mentors, um, but I got to tell you, on my own, before I met my mentors, it was nature. Okay. Because I always felt so welcomed and so um, exhilarated out in the canyons. And here in Ojai, there's beautiful canyons everywhere. Beautiful and scenery. And so mm -hmm. I would go get lost for hours, and I would always come back feeling like my soul was larger. And there was more eros in my life. And that... Go on, go on. I'm well, well, that shame boy starts to quiet a little bit. But then as soon as we get back into our regular life, the shame boy comes right back. That's where uh, I was going to go. We live in such a, you know, urban area. It's more 
common where you have to go out into the country to get some of that nature. And we still are lucky enough to have a lot of hills and mountains. But again, that's something that's different. Uh, the access to nature that was so readily available. We have to we have to kind of want to go get that too. It's not just in our backyard for most people. For a lot of people, it becomes one more thing they have to do, and they just don't know how to do it. One more thing. And they don't, I think, know how necessary it is for their health and well-being sometimes. Right. So for a man to begin to trust that he's being held with curiosity and and reverence is a huge leap for most men. And all I can say is it's long, slow work. Um, but once a man begins to make that crack into that old way of his personality not working and hiding that shame boy through all these different kinds of personalities I've described. Once that begins to crack, the work actually starts to quicken rather, rather fast. And like I said before, a ritual, a really well done sacred ritual is worth two or three years of therapy where that that strategic personality begins to crack apart and what comes through the crack, like the, the Leonard Cohen song, you know, our, our soul starts to pour through the cracks. Yes. yes. And it's disorienting. It's even deranging. That's a shamanic term derangement. But in that derangement, if you can tolerate it, you begin to get your life back. You begin to get your soul back. You begin and to know who you are. Exactly. And if men can stay with it long enough and have a tribe of other men that are all doing this work, it's life-changing. I'm in four circles a week. Okay. I, I can no longer get off track and um, have a destructive life anymore. The shame boy cannot have that kind of power with me because I'm seen by so many beautiful men. How comforting is that? It's like the ultimate spiritual insurance policy. It's just fabulous. Sounds like a nest. A nest holding you holding you in, holding you up. It is uh, a nest. It is a what? nest. But there's a tipping point. There's a tipping point. And a man has to stay with it long enough before that starts to happen. Yes. It sounds I like start to, I start to feel my own goodness, my own beauty. Mm, that's beautiful, Richard. If everybody could feel that and get that. Do men do the initiation process at any age and it's effective? If you can't do it at 14 or 15. Um, you There's know, a I lot can't. of reasons. You know, it's hard. It's hard for simple practical reasons like liability. Parents aren't going to let their 14-year-old kid go out in the wilderness. And the parents don't have the education to even value it. So what we see is right around between 35 and 55. Got it. Those are the ages, and predominantly around 40, 45. Interesting. And that's where men start breaking down. Yeah. All that, you know, Captain Ego has been running their life, and by 40, 45, Captain Ego can't do it anymore. I like that name you used. That it, it sums it up so well, what's yep. going on. Well, and, and here, here's the thing. It's supposed to be this way. In all cultures, the first half of life is about building a life. And even Jung said this. In the second half, you dismantle it. Mm -hmm. And so that second half is always the more spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And so it's not wrong that we do it that way in the first part of our life. It just is limited. Right. It's limited. And that's why people get divorced a lot around 40 and, you know, all the crazy behavior happens. Right. They call it midlife crisis a lot happens and things like that. And it seems like it could be all this unrevealed creativity and purpose and passion also that you're just now becoming aware of. The, the unlived life, the mm. unlived life starts yeah. to haunt us. One of the images is the soul has been in the back seat of the car and then Captain Eagle's been driving and by 4045 the soul says I'm not staying in this back seat any longer. Yes. I want to drive. When you so you and Tom do these initiations as well currently for men. Yes, they're and not they're, they're not full initiations but they're they're partial initiations in our weekend retreats. A full initiation takes, like, you know, a year. Yes. 
but we do the best we can with the culture that we're working with. That, yes. Because mo most people aren't going to give that much time to go right. out in the wilderness for but a year. They can do a weekend or a week and get right. that right and get the camaraderie and get that that experience. Right, and what cultivates it before that are the circles, the men's, the weekly men's circles. And those are your groups, your men's groups? Yeah, I've got two men's groups, and I think Tom has three. And these men are just so loyal. Have they been filling up more since the pandemic? Have you noticed a rise? Has it stayed the same or actually less because of the pandemic? I've actually lost a few men. Tom has gotten a few more. Um, and then Tom and I have our own group that's leaderless, and they're all healers. They're not all healers, but most of them are, and it's just for us. That's wonderful, because you have to take care of you. Too. We have, you have to, to take, take care, care of, of us. Yes, you have a lot of men under you that you are mentoring. That's uh, right. So we you, have to take care of ourselves. That's right. And you guys do Zooms as well? To we have to, yes. Clients? Yes. Nobody really likes it, but we do it because it's good enough. Yes, it keeps it yeah. going for yeah, these yeah. harder, different times. Yeah, just like this works, what you and I are doing. You make it work, yeah. You make it work. <laughs> make it work. When did you start writing poetry? Wow, what a question. <clears throat> Going back a little bit, because I'm so interested in what you, your work and the, and the writings you've done. I now know that this daimon that I spoke of earlier, part of my daimon is being a poet. So I, I know I was born a poet, but it wasn't really awakened until my first love around 14 and she wrote me poetry and i've learned from many poets that it came that way it was it was through falling in love how beautiful is that i yeah. love that poetry came to you and right. as your 14 year old self you wanted to reciprocate reciprocate it and that's a great lesson right don't be afraid to write poetry to others because what a beautiful gift i don't think she even could have known that she was it was going to affect you or open something up in you to that extent she had no idea when i first encountered her writing to me i just thought the words were so magical i yes. couldn't i couldn't even believe it that somebody would write with magical words so then that kind of lit that daimon inside of me and i became rather obsessed and uh now I call it non-negotiable. I have to write every morning for a couple hours. And I've been doing that for at least 20 years. Wow. Should everybody have that non-negotiable, whatever it is, the non-negotiable in their life? To with, with whatever your daimon wants, I believe, yes. And I don't Whether it's playing guitar or going That's swimming. Right. I don't, it's not two hours for everybody, but I, I think no. you can start with 10 or 20 minutes. Yes. I call it a daily sacred practice. Devoting some time. Yeah, because without that regularity, that discipline, it starts to fade. Everybody that starts something, if, if they don't stay with it, it just fades. And so we have to really want it. And this daimon really wants to be heard. It really wants to express itself. And so what I've learned, Lorraine, is that if I don't write, I suffer. I really suffer. Would you, would that even be advice you would give to a um, wounded boy who's 12 or 13 years old? Absolutely. Uh, to begin who, to find the artful life. Absolutely. No matter what it is, it could be gardening. It yeah, could and be what? You yes. know what's hard, Richard, is at that age, too, we're so impressionable and we can be the rest of our lives. But, you know, you go to pick up a guitar or you go to pick up a paintbrush and somebody says something, you know, that's negative and some of those things can stick we'll with you, you. Right out. you don't right. ever want to pick up a paintbrush again and you're an absolute gifted beautiful painter it, it's so hard you just kind of want to protect <laughs> everybody's ears and eyes from all those negative reactions they get that are totally uninvited right and, and, and so you can continue very, to thrive it's very tragic how that happens so i i want to bring in another idea this is really central to our work that Tom and I do. Is this It's an ancient idea called wounds and medicine. And the idea is that where you have been most deeply wounded, right next to that is where you are most deeply gifted. Interesting. And it's not logical, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you it's true. An example from my own life would be my deepest wound is that I grew up in a really difficult home. 
a lot of violence, and so I learned to feel like I didn't belong. Yeah. Well, my life's work is about welcoming people. Belonging. Belonging. And it's about helping people find their artful life, because I believe everybody has an artist inside. And so the place I was most deeply wounded informs where my magic is, where my gift is. And everybody can do that. It takes courage. It takes courage. But if you can track the place where you've been most hurt, and the reason why is the place we've been most hurt is where we have become most exquisitely sensitive. Mm -hmm. And that sensitivity is, leads us to our giftedness. Richard, that is beautiful. And it makes complete sense to me. It's, it, it completely makes sense. It's, it goes underneath the rational mind. You know what it is? It, intuitively, it intuitively feels right within you. I'll give you another example. I didn't speak till I was about four. And I started to research how many people that happened to. The poet Maya Angelou didn't talk till she was 10. Oh, Winston, my goodness. Winston Churchill didn't talk till he was three or four. James Earl Jones didn't talk till he... So there's a Einstein. lot of people... Einstein. I, um, Einstein also was a late. Einstein, teacher. yes. Yeah. Well, what we've learned is that when a young child experiences trauma, it shuts down the speech center in the brain. But that doesn't mean these beings aren't observing and soaking in their environment. And so, isn't it interesting that where I got shut down as an infant is a big part of my gift is I use my voice. Speaking, use, talking, speaking, expressing. I, I give a lot of talks and leading our men's retreats relies on my voice. And hopefully it's a voice that reflects my soul life. But that's, see, that's where I was most deeply wounded. Mm. And you're a great speaker now. I don't Isn't know about great, but it's, it's real. It's real. It's real and it's something you use constantly. There's a couple more questions and I know we're going to wrap it up. You mentioned your experience with the groups. When did you start feeling you had a calling to help others? Well, that goes way back. Um, I have the extraordinary good fortune of having an older sister that is like a soulmate of mine. Mm. And she wanted to be a school teacher, and I was her younger brother, so I wanted to be a school teacher. And I didn't realize that it was actually authentic, that longing. It wasn't just to please her. I also had that same daimon inside of me. Well, the school teacher learned, because I started, that was my first career of serving in that way. But I, I learned pretty quickly that I was drawn to the children that, that were uh, most challenged and had difficulty, like special ed. And that led me to becoming a therapist. Wow. And so it's like the onion just started getting peeled and peeled and peeled. And... The healer, I kept peeling that onion, revealed the poet. Mm. So, and they're all intertwined. Yes. Because sometimes I have to teach. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's healing that needs to happen. And then sometimes the artful life comes through with the poet. So they're all serving. And I love them all. What is the best thing about your job? Is well, there I just... One best thing. I don't know. There's probably many, many, many. <laughs> there's, there's so many, but I'll tell you what the best thing is, is I get to be around the most courageous people on the planet. Mm -hmm. They are so courageous because their lives are not working in some way. And so they're coming in and they're entrusting me to hold the safe and sacred and reverential place for them to begin to courageously look at their shadow material to begin to look at their deepest hurts and their shame. And that is the greatest honor that a person can give you. And I take it very seriously. Could I ask you for one more poem reading to close sure. on? I, I guess before we close, we should mention that you have a few talks coming up in the next couple months, correct? Well, Tom and I talk about the next talks coming up, but the pandemic, of course, has interrupted it. What we want to talk about is the very thing that's happening to the culture is this forced isolation. 
And because this is one of the favorite default modes of the masculine to isolate, that's one of the topics we want to address is not only how hurtful, but it's completely damaging and destructive. And mm -hmm. I got to tell you, most men do it. When most yes. men get overwhelmed, they isolate. You have those talks coming up in August, September. Are you going to be video videoing them? Is there a way people can see them if they want to see those talks? I have a lot of them on my website. Um, okay. We try to videotape most of them. A lot of them are at the Ventura Library where Tom and I give our talks. Wonderful. And so we just don't know when we're going to be able to do that in a safe way right now. Okay. But I'm always, I'm always working on the next talk. And one of my favorite talks is what we're talking about, the artful life. Yes. And, and what does that mean? And, and how can it affect people's lives? And I think so many people may not even know they have access to things like an artful life. And I want to let people know that they are not alone, especially in times like these, but anytime it's tapping into it and getting the resources you know you need to help yourself. Well, I want to thank you for your curiosity and reverence and holding space for me today. Your questions are beautiful. And, you know, for an artist and a healer, and a poet, it sometimes can feel pretty lonely. And so to be asked really great questions is such a delight. And I feel your authenticity. And I, I just want to say thank you. Thank you thank very much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much. So I'll complete with a poem that a lot of the men like a lot. It's called Brotherhood. Because when we can't really describe what it is that brings the men back, we often will say, well, it's the brotherhood itself. So I love is, that term. This is, a, this is a poem called Brotherhood. There's a quiet nobility that lives inside the bones of men who dare go into the trenches with a brother and hold him till his trembling becomes belonging. And there's a dignity that drinks from the underground springs of masculine blood. Down here, down here in the fecund howl of the earth, the dark blood of men runs thick through stones and bones and roots. A man needs brothers. Oh, yes, a man needs brothers. Then he can love a woman, really love a woman. Then he can love the world. Thank you so much. Wow. That was so, so beautifully written. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Lorraine. Thank you so much. To find more information about Richard Palmer and his poetry, you can check out his website at mentoringthelifeofthesoul.com. You can also find his poetry books on Amazon. I'd like to thank Richard Palmer again for being a guest on Everyday Heroes. You can check out more episodes of Everyday Heroes on Facebook at Lorraine Salazar Podcast or on Anchor FM at Everyday Heroes. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us and spread the word. Thanks for listening. We can be heroes forever and ever. What you say?